I'm Carol Cohn, and welcome to Purpose 360, the podcast that unlocks the power of purpose to ignite business and social impact. Joining me today is an extraordinary individual, Dan Hesse. Dan Hesse has held incredible leadership roles, president and CEO of AT&T Wireless, president and CEO of Sprint. And when he joined Sprint, the company had about six months left before it was going to declare bankruptcy. What's extraordinary about Dan is his earliest beliefs in culture and employees and stakeholder capitalism. Once he retired from Sprint, he's taken on board positions. He's chairman of the board of Akamai Technologies. He's on the board of PNC Financial Services Group, as well on the board of Just Capital. We are going to have an extraordinarily in-depth and penetrating conversation today about the role of culture in companies, whether it's a turnaround, whether it's taking an amazing culture at AT&T Wireless and just making it work even harder. The role of employees, employees are the secret sauce of any company's success. As well, what is the role of the board today in terms of ESNG? What is the role of the board in terms of guiding their C-suite leadership in the areas of purpose, culture, employees, and ultimately business success? And then lastly, and certainly not least, Dan's going to give us tremendous insights into how to embed a purpose into an organization and to have it truly activate and accelerate and create that deep glue with core stakeholders that are critical to a company's success. It's a tremendous conversation. So join me. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks, Carol. It's great to be here. Oh, I am thrilled. So since some of our listeners don't know the wonderfully infamous Dan Hesse, can you share a bit of your background? Because it's incredible. Thanks for asking. And again, Carol, it's a privilege to be um, here with you and and your listeners. Uh, So I grew up as a military brat. I went to 10 schools in grades 1 through 12, went to grade school in Italy, went to high school in Germany. Um went to uh, Notre Dame. We talked about that briefly for uh, for college. And uh, my uh, first job out of school was at AT&T. Um, so I spent 37 years in the telecom industry, my first 23 at AT&T. Then I went and did a startup for four years. Then I was the CEO of a landline phone company called Embark, which is now part of what's known as CenturyLink. And then I was hired to be the CEO of Sprint back in back in 2007. This was so amazing. You were named the most influential person in mobile technology by Laptop Magazine. And guess who was number two? Steve Jobs. So that's that's an amazing, amazing accolade. That's the first time I ever got my son's attention, my two boys. (laughs) When they they saw a magazine and saw me ranked ahead of Steve Jobs, they were stunned. You know, they saw dad as somebody who who carried out the garbage. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, they they really didn't didn't know, but they, so many of us have so much to thank you for all that you've done in the wireless industry and such. So today, I'm going to focus on four areas in our discussion. Dan is a very early adopter of stakeholder based capitalism, and we're going to talk about well, where did that come from, and how did he apply it um, to his work at ATT and to the Sprint turnaround. Um, We're also going to talk about um, culture because Dan is a huge proponent that culture is the great unifier. We're also going to talk about the role of employees. And I'm so thrilled, Dan, because I have been talking about employees at the center of purpose and a purposeful company and why they are the engine for three decades. And I'm so glad the world is is catching up to me. Of course, you've been one of my uh, compatriots in doing that many years ago. And then the last thing is the role of the board and how boards today are getting much more engaged in terms of purpose. They're actually having committees, the ESG committees and and such. So let's get started because this is going to be a great conversation. So you are a very early adopter 
um, in terms of stakeholder-based capitalism. What influenced you to have this point of view and where in your trajectory of company leadership were you and then how did it blossom? Well, I probably started as an undergraduate in college. You know, when we were at you know, Notre Dame, uh, you were asked, you know, what are you going to do with this Notre Dame education? And it being, you know, a religious school, there was this notion of vocation. And I always viewed business leadership as a vocation akin to the clergy or teaching or, or public service. I think Sadat said, without vocation, life is meaningless. And when I was getting out of at a business school, the most attractive jobs, the ones that my compatriots were going for were, were in investment banking and consulting. They paid a lot. I wanted to go work for a big company that made a difference. And that's why I chose AT&T. You know, the private sector, you just take a look at public sector versus private sector. The public sector is about $4 trillion. The private sector is about $18 trillion. So the private sector can have so much impact, especially large companies on millions of employees. Back in those days, AT&T had more than a million employees. Customers, on suppliers, on communities. So um, when going to work for AT&T, AT&T very early on, that AT&T, which really doesn't exist anymore, you know, parts of that AT&T are part of Nokia and part of Verizon and part of the, the current AT&T. But they had this focus on employees where we had a lot of financial literacy that we were taught. This notion, no job was so urgent, it couldn't be done safely, making sure we were safe all the time. Our customers focus on them as a, as a constituency or a stakeholder. There's this famous painting of Angus McDonald, which was all over all of the AT&T buildings where he's walking through this blizzard, this snowstorm in snowshoes. And you can Google Angus McDonald and there's a line hold, you know, coming down from a telephone pole. There's clearly some community that's out of service and shareholders, shareholders, not from the point of view of what we think of as shareholders today, hedge funds, you know, big investors or what have you. But when you started at AT&T each year, you had to go visit five shareholders. You got these cards of shareholders who wanted to hear from you. We were the widows and orphans stock. And what that was is you realized the purpose to earnings. So it was a very purpose-driven organization. You went out and you met with these people and they were um, retirees generally, and they lived off the dividends from the AT&T stock. So I remember that. That was... That was such an important part of why we were there. And when we needed to cut expenses, people were depending upon us. So I think that, you know, that that started it. But then during my career, I had a lot of frontline jobs in sales. And I could see this virtuous cycle between um, employees and customers, where as, as people, me in the sales organization or in the customer service organization, what made us happy was treating our customers well and serving them well. Customers, on the other hand, could see when the people they were dealing with, let's say at AT&T, loved the company they worked for. And it was this virtuous cycle. And what I saw over time is a customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction moved up and down together. And when they were moving up, business results were great. So if you kept your people happy and customers happy, everything else kind of took care of itself. So every organization I ran, then I tried to create a culture that was really founded upon three principles. One, my people, number two, customers, and number three, some higher calling, some purpose, which is what I learned at AT&T. Work was more than a paycheck. Uh, what was its meaning? And uh, that's really kind of how it all began. That's wonderful that you that you discovered that. And it, it was so humanistic and it was so real. Um, I also have to just tell you an aside, you and I have a tiny little parallel path because we did some work in the late 90s for ATT and the person we did it for went to PNC and they called me up and said, we want you to do for PNC what you were beginning to do for ATT. So interesting little connection there. Anyway, it sure is. Yeah, it is. And we, we love the folks at PNC. You had this idea. And when you were sharing it with others, other senior executives, how did they respond? First of all, there was just a kind of a question mark, almost apathy uh, from from some and particularly from from shareholders. 
that uh, you know we're we're there just to make money, to cut costs, to increase revenues, and we'll call it the the relationship between those items that I discussed that I discussed with respect to culture just wasn't that important. Some understood the relationship between customer satisfaction and business performance, but not necessarily kind of the other the other stakeholders that that were important. So I think that the number one thing that um, that I needed to work through was just uh, was was apathy. So how did you work with your senior team? Did you do anything special to explain, to, you know, talk about this connection between employee satisfaction and customer satisfaction? Uh, I'm sure that they were, you know, they came out of traditional probably B schools and they were looking for, you know, trying to create shareholder value. Well, one of the great things about being the leader is you just get to set, set the priorities, set what you measure. Uh, and that's, to be honest, Largely, that's that's how it went. Although I went to other parts and organizations that um, where leaders preceded me, I wasn't the you know I wasn't the inventor of all this. And then you just went in and, and tried to maintain what they were doing and not screw it up. So uh, an example would be Macaw Cellular. AT and T bought Macaw Cellular to get into the wireless business, and then after buying them, sent me and the AT and T guy in there to be the CEO of AT&T Wireless. And there was this McCall culture. The McCall culture was fantastic. They t- totally understood the importance of communities, the importance of employees, the importance of customers. So there were others out there doing it. And th- that's one of the reasons I enjoyed that job so much and so well is, is I, I didn't have to do any convincing. <laughs> so you're so authentic that that's it came through to your people to your leaders to people i'm i'm assuming also just you know on the manufacturing floor per se and it and it then it ultimately became your this amazing accolades that you were getting in terms of i i know at sprint you know glass doors saying you're one of the top leaders in, t- in terms of the country so it's wonderful just to hear some of those early early stories so then you joined sprint and you joined Sprint when they were facing bankruptcy. What were the initial actions that you took that were related to culture, employees, purpose? So I came into Sprint about two and a half years after it had merged with Nextel. And it's a merger that just um, didn't go well, largely because it was a merger of equals. And usually when you do a merger, you want one team to be inside, you know, kind of in charge and not the other. So getting to culture and purpose, the com- new company, Sprint Nextel, really didn't have a culture. It had two competing cultures, which is even worse than, than, than not having a culture. So as a CEO coming in, and especially with the sense of urgency that we had, the plan of record, the business plan had us filing for bankruptcy in less than six months. So we, didn't have, we did not have a lot of time. Number one, decide what you're going to do, which is your strategy. So we focused on the customer experience, brand, and conserving cash. Number two is who. That's who's going to be on the team. And we needed to change about half the board and about half the senior leadership team. Number three, and the most important of all, the MVP, I would call it, of our turnaround is how. And how's the culture? Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, not only did Sprint Nextel not have a culture, it had two competing cultures. And the way I've learned this, I learned it in my first few days. Everybody there, when they introduced themselves to me, introduced themselves as Legacy Sprint or Legacy Nextel. Like that was huh. really who defined who they were, what side they came from. And I'm going, oh my gosh, this is a problem. And that was easier for me because I came in from the outside. So I was neutral. I wasn't on either one of these, these competing teams. So I got up in front of all the employees on these video casts we used to do, like in the auditorium, and then it went, it was simulcast kind of across all of our offices across the country. And I would tell these stories of meeting people and they were always introducing themselves. And you could see these chuckles because everybody recognized it. And I said, listen, <laughs> great elements of the Sprint culture and their A, B, and C. And there are great elements of the Nextel culture and their D, E, and F. And there are great elements of other companies that I've seen that are really successful. We are going to create a new culture from scratch. I'm going to send out a questionnaire to all of you. I'm going to take the qualities of the Nextel culture, the qualities of the Sprint culture, some other qualities I've seen some 
other outstanding cultures and you vote, you tell me what are the elements of the company and is what's the culture of the company that you think number one is going to win and number two that you want to work for. So they were all engaged. And then what I would do, and I did it every quarter for my seven years there, on those 10 attributes, which we call the sprint imperatives, which defined our culture, we measured, we did a survey, how are we doing of walking the talk of each and every one of those? So that became kind of embedded. But what the culture was, was it really had three pillars. And I've mentioned this already, is it was really focused on our employees, our people, our customers, and then purpose. And we defined our purpose as being the good guys. And our focus was on really three main areas, sustainability, accessibility, which is our technology can make such a difference for people who are either blind or hard of hearing or autistic. So we, we moved our innovation engine to new products and capabilities for them. And number three was privacy. This was a brand new thing where, you know, all sorts of data was going over the phones and this data was being sold to advertisers and used to target advertising. We decided we would be the only company that as a customer, you didn't have to opt out to have your personal data used for advertising and what have you. We explained it to our customers, but before we would use it, even though it cost us money, you opted in Great, yeah. to that data target the advertising. So those were, you know, those were kind of elements of purpose, if you will, good works, we call them, we call them the sprint good works that, uh, that made it, made a difference. And so fast forward, kind of when you think of stakeholder capitalism, you think of your main stakeholders, how did this all work out? Of course, it took, took a while. It didn't happen right away, but from, on terms of customers, customer satisfaction, JD Power, we went from last to first. The American Customer Satisfaction Index, we went from last to first. As a matter of fact, the ACSI recognized Sprint as the most improved company in overall customer satisfaction of any of the 43 industries um, that they study. Our employees, the morale went from really low to kind of best in class because we did this, you know, we did benchmarking on, on employee satisfaction, brand and reputation. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, uh, to you in a previous conversation, you know, our brand really didn't, you know, stand for something. Our corporate reputation needed improving. Um, the Reputation Institute, which measures brands and the strength of brands among the global 1,000, the 1,000 largest companies in the world, our brand improved, our corporate reputation improved more than any company in the world. And finally, which particularly important is shareholders, because shareholders are watching all this. Because because shareholders could get upset if you're doing things other than things only for shareholders. Is in our last two years, Sprint's total shareholder return ranked number one among all 500 companies that make up the S and P 500 index, ahead of number two Netflix. So you know that by doing, we think the right thing in serving all stakeholders shareholders benefit over the long term. They you know it's counterintuitive. Because you know a lot of shareholders come at you and say you're paying your employees too much, or you have too many of them, or why not? Why aren't you outsourcing to Asia or blah blah blah? If you take a different point of view over the long term, um, the shareholders will be better off. It, that sounds almost like a fairy tale, and it wasn't. It was really, really true. And I have to say to our listeners that you know you hear in Dan's voice. All these accolades, but he is not arrogant. He is like of the people, which which I believe, based on working with a lot of CEOs, that that's part of his secret sauce. I, I want to go back to the six months. You had six months that this company was going to go bankrupt. And you had this amazing view of employees and customers and purpose. And I love the co-creation. Co-creation is absolutely critical today. Ask your people, get them to be part of the solution. What were the few things you did in the six months? Because you had that clock ticking for you. We communicated relentlessly with how we were doing. The other thing that was very difficult and, and with the people is, and, and this kept me up at night. And I think if, first of all, as a CEO, um, if you can't do it, 
um, you, sh you shouldn't be a CEO. And if it's easy to do, you shouldn't be a CEO. And that's lay people off. We were about to go bankrupt, which meant we couldn't pay the bills. And so we had to basically, I had to cut my operating expense just, and I, but I took the entire team through it. I put it up there on charts for all the employees and said, look, this is when we run out of money. And this is how much we have to take out. We have to cut our CapEx capital expenditures by two thirds and our operating expenditures by one third. And by far our biggest operating expenditure salaries and, and what have you, but we, we treated people well, we, as well as we possibly could, but they understood it. So what was interesting is in an environment where we had to go through layoffs, mor our morale scores and employee satisfaction scores actually increased. Hmm. And because we were straight with them, we told them how it was and why, and they understood it. And they could see that, you know, I was emotional when I had to explain this to them because I didn't want to do it, but we had no choice. You know, I, I still, when I think back on it, you know, that was a really difficult part of those, of those first six months, but people, they were all part of the team. We communicated. And of course, you know, they were engaged in the culture. That was also very helpful in that first six months. So people rallied around it. And then there was also lots of storytelling because we needed to, you know, I needed to move examples out there quickly. One is Sir Ernest Shackleton, who made the news just a few weeks ago because they found the endurance. And I got dozens and dozens and dozens of emails and calls when the endurance was found a couple of weeks ago because I would always use his story. I bought 100 DVDs and sent it out to the top 100 people at Sprint, the DVD of a PBS documentary called The Endurance, which was about Sir Ernest Shackleton, and said, watch this. This is the way we're going to lead. And it was extremely difficult, the decisions that, that he had to make uh, and that they had to make to survive, um, because this was all about, you know, all about survival. But the, we'll call it back then, it was, it was an all-male expedition. The men came first. So the leaders let the, they had two kinds of sleeping bags, for example. They had wool bags, which were not as warm as the nicer feather bags. The feather bags went to the men and the leaders slept in the, you know, the wool bags, which weren't as good, those kinds of things. And those were the examples. Um, another was about kind of competing um, and just giving it all we had. And so one afternoon, actually, I'm thinking about it now because the Masters are on and Tiger Woods is playing in it. So it's the U.S. Open. It's at Torrey Pines. And it's a Monday because he's in a playoff with Rocco Mediate. And I'm in my office. So... Um, working and it's early on it's 2008 everybody's working 24 7 and but there's a tv in my office and i'm looking at it in the corner and it's this incredible battle between these two where they're both giving it their all where rock immediate is outmanned from a skill point of view playing tiger woods but tiger woods has was a broken hip and knee you know it had to be you know operated on right afterwards, he could barely walk. So you had these two guys just laying it all out there. But as a team builder, I had my secretary call all my direct reports and say, Dan is really ticked. He wants to see you right now. <laughs> okay. so they come up and they're really afraid. Boy, what's Dan going to do? Take my head off. And I said, come in here and sit down. And I had the whole team and we watched the back nine of that U.S. Open together kind of as a team competing, giving it their all. Um, but it was just kind of this bonding experience. So you, these are the things that stand out to me of those, of those six months. They were an extremely difficult six months. The only three days in my first three months that I didn't go to work for a full day was Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Wow. Including the weekends. So it was, it was a tough period of time. So, so you actually lived a, a phrase that I always use, which is I call the speed of the leader is the speed of the troops. And it has nothing to do with pace. It has to do with actions. So uh, you were, you know, sleeves rolled up. Uh, the Shackleton story about, you know, you were taking the wool sleeping bag and, and, and not the feather one. Um, so, so that's, again, it's, it's the action that a leader takes. It's the humility. It's the openness. So congratulations to you. I want to turn to the board of Sprint. And you, had, you said that you had to change 
what, half of the board. So what was the process? I want to start leaning into boards and purpose uh, because uh, it's my understanding of people I know from boards that, you know, some years ago, purpose and ESG wasn't on the board agenda, and it is very much so. So can you talk about your engagement with your board regarding how you're going to change culture, how you're going to save Sprint and the role of purpose? You're right, Carol. Times have changed. So that was not a priority of the board um, back then. You know, this was, you know, the end of 2007, the beginning of 2008. It was a long time ago. And, you know, so this just wasn't on uh, the board's radar screen at all. But they could see my passion around it. They were very supportive. They were supportive of the leader. They needed. They knew they needed to be supportive of the leader, and they were. And this is what I felt we needed to do to get everybody engaged, enthused, almost that adrenaline, at, you know, that sense of urgency, uh, you know, this purpose in this culture. So they just, you know, honestly, they just su- supported me. But, you know, the board didn't stick it on the agenda. I talked about it. But times are different. You're exactly right with the new... Uh, expectations around, you know, ESG, environmental, social governance issues, you know, today, but today it is different. I want to pivot from Sprint to your roles today at Akamai and at PNC. So without telling any tales out of school, can you talk about um, the kind of areas that boards are looking at regarding purpose and ESG and how are they recommending to their CEOs and their leadership teams of the companies they're on, that the world has changed and there's a new way to look at stakeholders. You're exactly right uh, that the world has changed. So, in the just capital surveys that you know that we've that that you know we were talking about you know, briefly uh, earlier, uh, it shows that the American people expect companies to serve all stakeholders. You know, that's what that's what the American people want. We know employees want that. The other thing that is changing is that investors now increasingly also expect and they look for, you know, investors look at look at board members as representing their interests. And investors whether it's BlackRock or State Street or what have you, they expect the board and companies to focus on all stakeholders. Regulators do now. The SEC and others are coming out with new rules around disclosure and behavior and what have you. So uh, there's the there's a big movement, and I call it a movement. And we're on a journey. We're just learning, and things are changing each year and, and moving in this direction. So um, uh, that you know, companies recognize it, leadership team recognizes it. Um, management and the board recognizes it, that this is an expectation, but we're all learning together. So it's about talking. So one of the things that the boards I'm involved with is we're having these conversations with management, which is, look, we've always been able to define the role between of governance versus management. And our job as a board isn't to step over that, that line. Let the management of the company run the company. And then our job has been governance. But ESG is clouding that a little bit. Let's talk about it. Uh, where it's really up to management to set the culture and to define the culture. But it's up to the board now to make sure that at least that culture exists and that it's and that it's healthy. And some of the things that the board is looking at now are things like: Do we have the right measurements in place? So we're measuring new things. What's material? Asking questions. What's material to the company? In terms of deciding what our priorities should be, you know, do we have the right objectives and measurements as we measure company performance? What should go into compensation? So, you know, the board determines senior management compensation. What are those things we should compensate the management team for, which are new things? Some of these ESG metrics that didn't, that were not, if you will, measured and not compensated historically, and then disclose. So we're, we may be doing a lot of things. We're measuring lots that we're doing in sustainability. We're measuring all sorts of, you know, we're doing pay gap analyses and all sorts of things internally. 
hmm, what do we want to disclose and not disclose? Those are the kinds of debates that are going on in the boardroom uh, and, and discussions between the board uh, and, and management. Do you feel that this has gotten from early adopting boards to more of the mainstream middle boards who are recognizing, yes, this has moved from shareholder-based to stakeholder-based, that the company, as Larry Fink said, must have a purpose and must manage to its material issues related to stakeholders? Based upon my experience uh, is I think I think we've reached that tipping point finally where we're kind of over half the way there. Again, it's it's still a journey. And of course, actions speak louder than than words. And it's a lot more important than an org chart and what you put down on a piece of paper. But you're seeing boards take ESG categories like environmental categories for example, uh, which are the new, the E and the S are kind of the new, the G categories kind of have always been there uh, and mapping them responsibility-wise either to the full board or to specific committees and changing the name of committees. Like um, what was the nominating governance committee at, at Gakamai is now the ESG committee, but E issues could be assigned to either the audit committee or the risk committee um, or the nomin-gov committee. Assers issues could be social issues, typically are handled by the comp committee or the human capital committee. Those are the kinds of things they discuss. Whether the company should take public stance on certain external issues often are discussed in, we'll call it the comp committee, and then at the full board. So what I'm seeing, Carol, is that actions are being taken by boards to take ESG issues and, and update the charters of the board, where these specific things are being put in the charters of committees and at the charter of the board. Now, again, actions speak louder than just putting something in the charter, but that's a pretty important step. And I'm, I'm seeing that happen a lot. What do you think, as you're sitting on these boards and you're also talking to your peers um, in business, that are the continued barriers to boards to embrace purpose and ESG? I honestly think it's so much easier now. I guess it's going back to, you know, we started our conversation, you know, back in my sprint days, you know, before ESG was cool. During those days, there were barriers. I don't really think there are barriers anymore. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I think if anything, you know, it's just a tailwind. Ah. And, and it's just it's learning. I think the biggest barrier is just it's education and understanding. And you, you pick the issue. It's, it's, it's just learning. And you're seeing a lot of courses being given at board levels. A lot of um, some people are pushing you need, just like you needed financial expertise on the audit committee. Well, I think you might need sustainability expertise on the board, or you might need some other kinds of expertise that were never looked at or required for boards before. I mean, cybersecurity was one a few years ago that that, that came up. Uh, so that's one of the barriers for, uh, I think, for boards is just, it's, it's just education and familiarity. And continue the journey. How about purpose per se? Regarding an organization knowing its North, North Star, knowing why it truly exists, hard to measure. It's more about, um, it's got more esoteric elements. How, what's that conversation like at the board level? Well, I think the most important thing is what's interesting in a lot of these issues is that the management will say, um, yeah, we really have a strong culture. Well, and then the conversation would be, well, we're not a part of management. So explain the culture to me, articulate it, and they can't do it. Well, you know, if you're here, you'd understand we have the strong culture. We all feel it. I think you need to be able to articulate it because if you can't articulate it to the board, because the board's role is also to embody that culture at the board level. If we're going to support the company, we should have the same kind of culture at the board that the company has. So one company that I, that I know of had a extremely collegial family-like culture. Board meetings were anything but. That's the disconnect. Okay, that you know that that's a disconnect. You know, I think that basically defining and articulating these issues of of purpose and mission 
or vision and culture. You can go right down. There's a lot of these words that it's like a Venn diagram. They all mean something slightly different, but they're highly related. Putting it down on paper is is an important exercise, and 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 that is uh, an important part of board education uh, and discussion between boards and management. What about um, embedding? So you've talked about the things that you have done to embed, which are brilliant, embedding the purpose, embedding uh, the vision of where the company is going, your pillars that um, will support the purpose. Are there, what are boards thinking about and do they even get into that level? Because that's more of a management issue. So I'm just curious about, do you have conversations about, like, how do you make it stick? You just talked about culture, that the culture of the company needs to be really reflected in the culture of the board. But what we find is, and, and we've got some new research coming out in about a month a month or so, that there's... See, the C-suite recognizes we must have a purpose, and purpose is absolutely important. But there's also this purpose washing bubbling up. And so since you have been such um, a proponent of purpose from the earliest days at your at your gut level, um, again, are boards making recommendations regarding how to embed, or do you have any other ideas about really good ways to embed purpose so that it really sticks? There's, there's three things that really drive change uh, and drive embedding. One is compensation. If it's really important, you put it in the compensation plan, but you can't put everything in there because you only have so many things. Number two is agenda. What's on the agenda? Um, people work on what you spend time on. And so, for example, when I was CEO, if something was on the agenda, it became part of the agenda of everybody in the company because person below me to get them ready for my meeting would have that on their agenda. So they were ready to talk about it and then down to the next level and down to the next level, because that's how you spend time. And number three is measure it. That's why financial objectives are so important. They're measured, you know, and everything's on a chart, either it's red, yellow, or green based upon how you're doing, put a number on it and measure it. So I believe you can do that with culture. You can do that with purpose. Um, we would do everything from surveys, and this is you know as a CEO and as a board member. Let's measure it. Uh, how are we doing? And you can use internal measures. The best are surveys. You ask employees, how are we doing? And walking the talk on A, B, C, or D. But you could also use external measures. It could be accolades. So serving customers well is is important. J.D. Power, where do you stand on J.D. Power? Where do you stand on the American Customer Satisfaction Index? The innovation is important. You can ask your people, how are we doing about being innovative? You can also look at how many patents are we being granted? Uh, you can look at other things like that. So sustainability, you can have all your internal benchmarks, which are paper use reduction, water use reduction, et cetera. But where do I rank on Newsweek's rankings or somebody else's rankings of sustainability or just capital or, or what have you? You look at those external sources. I think it's measuring it. So as a board, I think treating culture and treating purpose the same way you treat the historical financial measures. And just, again, make sure that if, it, if it's material, that possibly it becomes part of the compensation plan, but at least it's on the agenda and you measure it. And when you do those things, things happen. It's like voila. Oh, that's great. Uh, and very well well stated. Very, very, very well stated. Um, I wanted to ask a question about activism and social activism today because, and I was just at a Just Capital meeting in New York and they were talking about the S and ESG. Um, and uh, there was one panel that really talked about there are different expectations, obviously, from employees as well as external um, NGOs and others that companies will take some action. The most current, obviously, is, is are you staying in Russia? What's happening with Ukraine? Do you have employees there, et cetera? But there's also obviously um, the, you know, there's there's social justice. There's many environmental, uh, climate change. What's your recommendation to people listening to our listeners about how does a CEO select which 
issues to go after and to get engaged with and which ones to pass up? I wish I had the answer. This is a tough one. And every company, <laughs> it's a hard one. Yeah, yeah. Every company is going to be different. And again, we're learning as we go along and the world is changing. But what we see now, and you mentioned just capital, is that the research shows now that the, the majority of the American public expect CEOs and companies to take a public stance on these issues, the social issues, where years ago they did not. And they, they wanted us to stick to our own business and not these social business, you know, these, you know, not talk about these social issues. So the mores of the country is changing in terms of expectations. I think, um, first of all, as a company, you need to take a look at your own values and your own culture and which, which are important to your values. Uh, and, and if something really, um, an issue is at the heart of what you stand for. That makes it important for you to take a stance. You also need to understand as a company, there are risks of taking a stance. So for example, Dick Sporting Goods decides it's not going to sell guns. They're going to deal with a boycott of people who thinks, you know, who are on the other side of the fence. That has a material impact, but there's, a, so there's a risk and a downside of taking a public stance. Disney, on the other hand, I might argue the risk of not saying something, we're talking about the Florida and the don't say gay, there may be an even greater risk today of not saying something. So um, you need to take a look at your own values. You need to take a look at materiality. I think you need to, your HR organization, know how your employees are feeling because your employees are the most important of all of your stakeholders on these kinds of issues. Yes, the public. Yes, customers, that's all important, but your people, because that's the engine that your company runs on. And if they see a disconnect between your stated values and what you're actually doing or not doing, you, you know, you've got, you've got a problem. And when you talk about employees, though, and, and I can talk about this from firsthand experience, your employees are not homogenous. They're all over the place. And so, you know, some are going to disagree and some are, going to agree with the company taking a position on perfect on, on some issues. I mean, I remember this is years ago at Sprint, we advertised on Will and Grace, the TV show. We had customers and, and others and even employees writing these nasty grams. You know, we're supporting gay lifestyle, lifestyles by advertising on the program. We decided we were going to continue. That's not what we were doing and, and went forward. And the boards I've been on, uh, you know, recently in talking to other board members, employees were all over the place, for example, on mask mandates and vaccination requirements and, and public positions on those kinds of issues. You just have, need to have your, your ear to the ground and know how your employees feel one way or the other. So it's a long way of saying, Carol, that I, I, I don't have the answer, but it's important. I think things are changing where the risk of not speaking out for the first time, I mentioned tipping point. I think we're at a tipping point where the risk of not speaking out is even greater. Greater than the risk this. of speaking out. Listen to your employees, think about it, but let your values and your culture be your guiding light. Oh, I totally agree. I know there was a great editorial um, from Alan Murray, who's going to be on the show soon about his his new book, Tomorrow's Capitalist. And he said this really simple statement, the storm always finds you. You, you just can't hide anymore because of the transparency afforded by social media. Um, so I think that and I always say, and I'm glad you, we are in violent agreement that, you know, look at your values. Truly, what do you live by? And then you're going to have to make a decision. I, I always love and I'm sure that you remember um, Colin Kaepernick and Nike. And when Colin Kaepernick took his knee and, you know, everybody's saying to me, oh, my God, look at Nike stock stock you know, dropped so much. They lost, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And I'm a shoe dog. I grew up around the shoe industry, did a lot of work. And I went, no, 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 no. <laughs> you got to understand their target market. Their target market is totally going to support this. And then, of course, you know, with a couple days down and then shoo, stock goes right back up and goes farther. And, you know, the brand love for Nike, which is, you know, such an amazing brand, just, just continued because they knew who their employees were, their values and, and such. So 
great, great guidance. I always like to ask our guests, um, what are your top two to three um, suggestions for C-suite executives? Could be a CEO who are, they're going to really take their purpose. Maybe it's been dormant. Maybe it's not really crisp, but they're, they've decided they must know what they stand for and then embed it into their, to their company and their culture. So what, I mean, you can give, I know about 20, (laughs) um, that might be our, our next interview, but what are the two to three things that you really are, you're sitting with someone and you're saying, you know, you're going on your purpose journey. Great. Here's what you really should think about. I mentioned it a little earlier, but I'd, uh, but I'd emphasize it. Number one is make sure that you uh, create uh, or support or strengthen and have a strong culture. And I would highly recommend one based upon my own experience that serves two stakeholders, your people uh, and uh, your customers very well, but also with some sense of purpose to it as well, because that is re- drives, if you will, the behavior, positive behavior of both your people and your customers. Uh, and engage them if possible. If there isn't one, from my own experience, I found that the fact that we engaged all the people in the company, that they had a say in what that culture was of the company that they wanted to, to work for, um, made made a big difference. Number two, make sure you can articulate and define it, uh, which is important to really the, the third recommendation, which is to, to measure it. Know how you're doing. Like anything else, how can you say you're doing really well in something where you, you're not measuring it? How do you know? Uh, and also, it, it sends a signal to your people that you really take it seriously because they know if you don't measure if you don't measure it, if you don't spend time on it, um, and sometimes if you don't compensate for it, it's not that important. So those would be my recommendations. So this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I would maybe, I hopefully I can invite you back in a year if you come back. Cause I love <laughs> like, you know, Martin's been on the show multiple times and my favorite guests, I always like to come back. So hopefully you will. But I always like to give the last um, conversational point to my guest. So is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners before we have to say goodbye? Well, thanks, Carol. This has been fun and and a privilege. One parting thought is that I think the way we define great leadership, what makes a great leader, that's changing. Soft skills are becoming paramount. Uh, and there's a variety of factors. We've we talked about ESG and purpose and what have you, but I think you add the pandemic to that and the nature of remote work, the barriers to exit for employees pretty much gone away. Um, I've seen companies where people were miserable, they couldn't stand the leadership, but they couldn't leave because either their kids were in school in that town or their spouse had a job in that town or what have you. Now with remote work, the barrier to exit is gone. So soft skills, um, and also with the great resignation, lots of people that you'd love to have come back to work aren't coming back to work because work is just a paycheck. If they have enough money, why work? Purpose is all about, it basically answers the question, why work? That's why, just like why leave, people would ask me, why on earth do you want to be the CEO of a big public company with all the grief? It's a vocation. It's a purpose. That's why. Um, and it's why people would come back to work. A purpose, something more than just a paycheck. That's why I want to come back. And there's lots of people on the sidelines. And it's that leader who can communicate and engage, who's got that authenticity, that real authenticity where they stand for something with meaning. I think the new leader that we're going to see that is the most successful leader going forward is going to be a different kind than what we've traditionally used to define um, a a great leader. I'm curious how many you must be giving speeches to B-schools and uh, emerging leaders. Do you you get that opportunity? And, And do you have one that's just been really memorable that you've done the last year, virtual or in person? Like, um, yeah, in the last uh, in 
you know, in the, in the last few years, they've been they've been virtual, and I've done a number of podcasts and what have you. And I have three alma maters that I'm asked to come speak with the students, and I love it. Um, yeah. Those being uh, Notre Dame, and I have my two graduate degrees from MIT and from Cornell. And I am, in, and so I, I do go back and, and speak there from time to time. And you know, I like to say one of the things I like so much about it is, you know, these young people are listening to everything you're saying. You know, the, it feels so good, especially as you know, a retiree like me, to be able to go and share your experiences and you know your your you know your mistakes as well as your successes and what you've learned um it's uh, it's it's truly it's truly rewarding so um i'm i'm happy that my alma maters keep asking me back and that's keeping me fairly busy you see leadership as a calling um and and so that's so exciting so i am thrilled i have to thank shout out to martin Whitaker for um introducing me to dan so i can have dan on the show i know it's going to be a fabulously listened to show um, from people all around the globe. Um, so that's, you know, your message, your um, incredible just presence. Um, and while we're only virtual, um, you know, it's, it just comes through loud and clear. So thank you, Dan Hesse, for joining Purpose 360. And I want to just say to our listeners, please, please go to wherever you listen to your um, podcasts and give us a rating. We want to get five-star ratings um, because we want to get up there in the pantheon of all these business podcasts. Purpose in business is absolutely critical. So um, please go give us a, a, a rating and also um, give us any ideas of other guests you'd like us to have on the show. So in closing, uh, it's Carol Cohn here. I just want to say that Dan gave us the most incredible conversation to answer the question that I always use in my presentations. What is the power of your purpose? Thank you, Dan Hesse. And I hope to have you back on the show again in about a year. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. I look forward to our next conversation. <laughs>